outlets we can't do anything about really at this particular point in time. No, um, but there are potential things we can do from a coagulation perspective. Um, probably find almost a, a universal um, refusal from a, a fresh frozen plasma perspective. Um, but interestingly, and this is why I think it's really important that we have to individualise the care. Um, vastly different beliefs in relation to cryoprecipitate. Agree. Um, and so, I agree. properly, I would say probably fifty percent um, would yep. will accept cryoprecipitate. Yep. Um, whereas 50% won't be comfortable with it from yep. that perspective. And I think it's, it just gives us that greater degree of ability to potentially treat things um, when we've got that yeah. ability to and prior. Some people... Hi, everyone. Welcome back to um, part three of the um, patient blood management sort of mini-series that we're putting together. I've got Anastasia again. How are you going, Anastasia? Great. I feel like yeah. it's like days of our lives <laughs> yep. back again for um, our mini-series. And uh, Nolan. Uh, it's um, nice to be here. Thank you, Roger. So I'm oh, just going to read through. We've got another case. Um, as uh, with the other previous episodes, we're going to discuss a hypothetical case and then we'll obviously probably get distracted and go down different directions to talk about various issues. Um, so this case is uh, Miss... N- in O Blood, Miss No Blood, she is. Um, so you're asked to see a 32 year old woman. Um, she's a Jehovah's Witness. She's 30 weeks pregnant. She has a history of having had two previous cesarean sections, and she's just had an ultrasound, which shows um, evidence of placenta percreta. Um, she has had some bloods done. She's got a hemoglobin of 112 and a ferritin of 19. So they're planning surgery probably sometime in the next month. And uh, yeah, all, all things um, going well, um, and they've asked you to see her. So you know, we'll say from the hematology point of view and the anaesthetic point of view. Um, what do we need? Or well, first question is, what should we do, or what do we need to do to optimise her? And what are the what are the issues that we're worried about? Well, I think we've probably I mean, we've we've talked about it in the two other podcasts potentially. Um, but she, this lady, on the face of it, with a hemoglobin of 112, would appear to potentially have a normal hemoglobin for this stage of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But we know in the setting that it's suboptimal, um, yep. and particularly, um, I don't necessarily like to think of it in terms of religious beliefs. I think of it in terms of personal beliefs because we have. Yeah, that's right. Um, we have certainly, obviously, there are religious beliefs, but there's a lot of personal beliefs around blood and blood products. Um, so we need to individualise her care. Um, but she's got significant iron deficiency, um, and given the background of the placenta percreta and the potential for blood loss with that surgery, um, obviously the key is to optimise her iron deficiency at this point in time and any other potential nutritional deficiencies that she had, which might affect her red cell production. Yep. I would probably start by saying the number one thing for this woman is a multidisciplinary team approach and um, communication with patient-focused care. Now, I know they are all kitsch words, but that's exactly what Nolan just said. It's about individualising the woman's um, management plan. She is... There's a lot of red flags that make us intrinsically nervous in haematology and and anaesthetics, and I suspect um, the obstetric team is going to be really worried about her. Hence, they say, speak to him and speak to anaesthetics, but she needs a multidisciplinary team because of her risk of, of yep. harm to herself and her ba- to the, to the, her and the baby. But that would happen um, 
independent if she um, need if she chooses to refuse to consent to blood as well. Yeah, so we have a very good team that you know, started by Maddie a few years back here at Kingwood, and we treat all these women in that manner, don't we? We yep. have a great multidisciplinary team. Thanks, Matt, if you're listening. Um, where we get together and try and we follow a lot of patient blood management principles and sort of getting these women ready for surgery. Um, I guess we're worried in this situation though that you know we know that in percent of percreter surgery, which is probably even more risky than mm-hmm. accreter surgery, she could easily lose half or her mm-hmm. whole, you know, the equivalent of her blood volume um, mm-hmm. during the surgery. So that's pretty nerve-wracking if you're unable to tr- use um, allogeneic blood products. Yeah, so and I, and I think, again, this comes down to the multidisciplinary team that you've got caring for her, and uh, we will often find, surprisingly, I guess, or not surprisingly, the patients that we tend to worry about the most from a blood loss perspective, you'll often have your most skilled surgical mm-hmm. anaesthetic yep. multidisciplinary mm-hmm. teams caring for, and they'll often yep. lose less blood than a standard caesarean delivery. Um, but I think it, it really highlights why you need a high-level tertiary centre looking after these sorts of cases. Yep. yep. So that's probably that's probably the key thing, isn't it? Having so. a really skilled team yep. who are really good at this sort of surgery. Mm. From the haemoglobin sort of mm. blood management point of view, so well, the way I think about it in my head and when I explain to um, someone who says, oh, but the haemoglobin is 112, yeah, I can't remember what's the normal range, 115? Let's uh, say. By this stage, third trimester of pregnancy. 105. So, yeah. 105, okay. Third so trimester, it's what, it's well, what depends the on international depth. So, so my yeah. question is, yeah. what is the range? So it's 105 to 155? Uh, 135. 135. So over 135 is abnormally high? Mm. Okay. But I would rather have that. I would rather have a hemoglobin of 135 before my percreter surgery starts than 105. Mm. Now I'm just going to uh, I'm going to be the devil's advocate <laughs> with Anastasia because mm. those reference ranges third trimester of pregnancy depends on where you are in the world. So True. some centres it's between 100 to 105, others it's 110, mm-hmm. um, and we don't necessarily know what a normal hemoglobin in pregnancy is. Um, because of the difficulties with the reference ranges and so um, certainly if we if we correct all the nutritional deficiencies um, this lady's hemoglobin uh, like would probably have an idea of around 120 to 125 mm-hmm. in pregnancy yep. um, as opposed to what we see with with yeah. suboptimally treated and so I guess another way I think about it is like hemoglobin around 30 to 20, 20 to 30 once you drop below that in a young healthy person like this that's sort of starting to get, become life-threatening. So I'm thinking, if she, st- if she, let's say hypothetically, she went from 112 to 30, a drop of 80. If we started at 140 and dropped 80, she'd end up at 60. Mm-hmm. And 60 is pretty safe. 30 is not that safe. No. So I think so um, there is, there will be that dilutional. <coughs> so we yeah. don't want to make her polycythemic because of her risk of thrombosis and all those sort of yes. things that we don't want to do. We want the placenta to be happy, but you know, within the normal, the upper the limit normal of the range. normal we're still range, we're still in the normal range, but we're in the upper normal yep. range. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right. Um, and so, so the, the good thing is that she should have a lovely normal bone marrow that wants to do the very best it can to give her the highest haemoglobin as possible, but she just yep. needs the building blocks. So absolutely intravenous iron. And I would actually probably be encouraging her to continue her folate tablets. Most women uh, during pregnancy do take multivitamins or folate replacement. And I would absolutely encourage that as well. Um, And I would check her B12 stores. And unless she has a restricted diet or has had um, gastric band surgery, um, she's probably got okay B12 levels. But I'd start with that. 
and um, you know then there's some other things that I'd be checking um, not so much of an issue in obstetrics um, but making sure she's not over, uh, taking any over-the-counter medicines or supplements that can affect her platelets because of her yep. increased risk of bleeding um, you know that's things like turmeric garlic um, obviously anti-inflammatories which aren't an issue in yep. obstetrics antidepressants um, can be a real um, yep. can be an un unidentified risk uh, of increasing platelet disorders uh, because we know the SSRIs um, interfere with your platelet function. So I'd be uh, not saying that we should stop a woman's um, uh, antidepressant medications, but just think what other things other than the really obvious, you know, she's not on. Fish oil is lovely to make platelets not stick to each other. So Mm. fish oil, garlic, um, turmeric, all that good stuff that stops you having heart attacks will definitely make you bleed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I have, I have actually cared for one lady mm. who was uh, not having a caesarean delivery, having another uh, interventional procedure who was on high-dose fish oil yeah. um, and actually had a spinal cord bleed. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Oh, um, and when they tested her platelet function, um, yeah. Yep. Um, and it was well, all secondary, essentially, to yes. the, the very high-dose fish oil she yes. was taking. Yep. All right, so so she she does she tells us that she's got, um, you know, religious... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, beliefs that, um, are, and uh, how would we explain or have a discussion about the different blood products uh, and sort of clarify what they will and won't accept? Because my personal observation mm-hmm. is that we understand what all the different blood products are. They're quite, it's quite confusing for for a lay person. Yeah, and um, so I think again it comes back to individualising the conversations that you're having um, yeah. and realising that. Um, even amongst Jehovah's Witness communities, there's a range of different beliefs, and so it's really mm-hmm. important to understand it, exactly what their thoughts are with the various blood and blood products that we can use um, yep. in this sort of situation. But I think from a, a but also from a consumer perspective, one of the first things that I say to patients is, um, I understand the, the difficult, or I understand um, your beliefs around this. Um, I respect the beliefs that you had yep. that you have, but I need to understand them fully so that we can plan your care. And so I am going to have to ask you some potentially difficult questions in relation to your beliefs, um, but I respect your choices um, and we'll take very good care of you. Um, And we will respect your choices, but I need to understand them fully so that we can plan your care appropriately. Yep, that's a a really way of phrasing it. Outstanding. Outstanding. Just for historical context, I did did look into this in the past. So the the original sort of publication from the Jehovah's Witness... um, uh, Body or you know or institution or church or whatever they um, what is their um, appropriate term I can't can't remember. Um, there was a publication um, I think it was in the nine, late nineteen nineties and they talk about <coughs> and there is a table that's quite freely available and you can look up which talks about the things that are on the forbidden list mm-hmm. I think it's called which is like whole blood red cells white cells plasma mm-hmm. and platelets. And then underneath that, there's all the other different fractions and mm-hmm. components of blood that are that have been uh, that are available on, uh, nowadays with modern medicine, and those are sort of um, up to individual choice. It says, oh, so oh, if you can find that table, might even put this on, uh, put a, a copy of that table on the on the web. So I find that talking about those other things mm-hmm. and explaining those is really important in this in this conversation because that's when we can talk about fixing the coagulopathy with various um, things like fibrinogen and cryoprecipitate and. So I I find um, within this uh, cohort of patients, they're the same. uh, So some have uh, exceptional health literacy to the point where I'm put to my paces. They've got exceptional um, knowledge about situational awareness and internationally what's available, 
Whereas some yep. people have just got a rhetoric, almost have a, I can't have this. Yep. But most people are profoundly informed and if they're not, they often bring someone from their, um, a support liaison officer will come around and give them support as well. So um, I absolutely do not say I am here to facilitate what they wish um, and unpack some of those kind of those it's not even grey areas. It's about the how, what they feel about those. Uh, it's usually yeah, the it's feel. products. Yeah. Um, and I think asking them that they I- acknowledging it might be uncomfortable is actually a really nice way to say it. So yeah, I might do. I might. I, I generally say, say I'm here to help you um, ensure we we do what you want us to. So mine's much more clumsier than yours, but I quite like uh, your approach of saying it might be uncomfortable, but just help me um, translate that for you. Yep. Yeah, and I think I mean it's comes down to patient autonomy and, yep. and, and respect and, and that's why I, I guess I urge uh, people to take the focus off the mm. religious side of I things agree. because yeah, we, exactly. we see a number of patients yeah. with uh, similar beliefs that are not a religion based belief yeah. um, and yeah. so um, for me the religious side of things is, is really secondary to the individual patient beliefs. And there's even some evidence out there that, that um, some, some Jehovah's Witnesses who have you know uh, made um, various uh, surgical crafts sort of do patient blood management mm. focused approaches for them and they've ended up having better surgical outcomes because um, yeah. well I think it's, it's been really it's yeah. been really well shown that yeah. um, you so actually something have, to it. have better outcomes <laughs> in these situations and yeah. it's partly that you you tend to have a, a more senior more experienced surgeons but also greater respect for the patient's own blood which I think mm-hmm. yeah. is a theme that we we need to adopt universally yeah. essentially right, that the, not the best, the best blood is basically the patient's own blood yeah um, so the key so the key things that I um, talk to them about um, are that we can you know usually we can use cell salvage in these cases so so when it comes to red cells mm-hmm. the fact that they refuse red cells we, we can usually hopefully um, capture or, or um, collect a, a, a significant pr- fraction of their own red cells if they do bleed a lot and wash them and give them back. Um, but the one thing that we can't fix is, uh, or necessarily, is if they become coagulopathic. That becomes very tricky if they won't, if, um, if they're not... Um, willing to think about some of those sort of their personal choice level sort of um, I've decisions. Had, I've had patients not consent to cell salvage because the blood's leaving their body. Yes. Um, and so that's the challenge as well. Yep, um, and that and does I think happen we sometimes. All, and yep. I think we feel a little bit more reassured that we have something to offer from a, um, yeah. from a, re, a red cell, uh, from a cell salvage perspective. And I'll, Yeah, and I'll, I'll probably say the converse in a sense, Anastasia, that these days... Um, particularly with the way that we do things from a Jehovah's Witness perspective in terms of using our cell salvage and continuity with their circulation, mm-hmm. um, that I, I don't, I can't remember any that have actually refused cell salvage um, based yeah. on the way that we do cell salvage here in this institution. And I think that's um, the next part of that uh, quaternary referral service mm-hmm. where um, you've even got a more sophisticated cell salvage model than most uh, cell salvage outside, the obs- or definitely outside obstetrics as well. So mm-hmm. I think that's just another point towards the way we offer our service. That's multidisciplinary yeah. and expert. Yeah, and, and on Roger's point, um, so we're starting to talk about the things that you will lose in a significant mm-hmm. hemorrhage. And so I, I like to think, similar to how Roger was really thinking in terms of we lose red cells, we lose platelets and we lose coagulation factors. Um, and the red cells we could potentially manage, um, although mm-hmm. you can't manage um, from a rapid transfusion perspective um, with cell salvage kept in continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, platelets we can't do anything about really at this particular point in time. No, um, But there are potential things we can do from a coagulation perspective. 
um, uh, probably find almost a, a universal um, refusal from a, a fresh frozen plasma perspective. Um, but interestingly, and this is why I think it's really important that we have to individualise the care, um, vastly different beliefs in relation to cryoprecipitate. Agree. Um, and so I agree. properly, I would say, probably 50% Half, yep. um, would yep. will accept cryoprecipitate, yep. um, whereas 50% won't be comfortable with it from yep. that perspective. And I think it's just gives us that greater degree of ability to potentially treat things um, when we've got that yeah. ability to use and cryo. Some people, uh, if you... Uh, the alternative fibrinogen source obviously is fibrinogen concentrate and I think uh, there are some individuals where when you show them it looks like an ampule of uh, of antibiotic more than a bag of blood products. Um, I know that's only a sort of like an illustration but yep. th- these are the things that swing some people. Um, so for, that's definitely a conversation worth having in someone who's um, you know not comfortable with cryoprecipitate or... I probably need to practice my poker face because I'd say it's yeah. the same stuff but dry. Yeah, but that's yes, exactly I'll, right. I'll pra- but I wouldn't. My focus. I know. I, I would I'd, like I'll, I'll, talk it up I'll and pause. say it looks it I'll looks pause. more like the kefazolin. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, well, so I mean, I, I don't those are the things that keep me up at night. Not being able to fix the coagulopathy, yeah, not right. necessarily the red cell. Just on Anastasia's point, I mean, I, I don't know if it's as well appreciated. We talk about cry, cryo precipitate, but it is the precipitate, the powder from the. From FFP. the thawing <laughs> process, essentially, or the off FFP. FFP. Right. So exactly. we're um, we are yeah, it's yep. basically a powdered Correct. suspension um, that we're doing, and we're, when we use cryoprecipitate. Okay, and then going out on limb, we don't think we've ever done this here, but I do know that some of my cardiothoracic colleagues occasionally do it in um, cardiothoracic surgeries. There is one way of sort of quarantining um, some platelets for for a patient, and that's doing acute normal volemic hemodilution, mm-hmm. which is a, mm-hmm. an, a, a technique that's probably not familiar to many people listening, but it's where you, similar to um, uh, cell salvage, you, you keep you keep it into continuity with the, with the patient, but basically you take off some of their whole blood and um, leave, it, leave it connected to them, and you anticoagulate it and stick it next to them, um, and then replace that with some clear fluid of crystalloid or a colloid prior to surgery and then the surgery takes place there's lots of bleeding surgeons stop bleeding and then you give it back to them and um, I know some of my colleagues have done that for cardiothoracic surgical cases and you could theoretically do that in a case like this as well that would be one way of getting some platelets Mm. but it seems a bit extreme and I don't think it's really warranted for most people and also, I guess she's already going to be hemodilute a bit anyway because yeah, that's she's right. pregnant. Because so probably what you do is making her a bit coagulopathic yeah. before you start. You're just diluting stuff uh, a bit more. Anemic and a bit coagulopathic yeah. before you start. So oh. I don't know if that's a good idea. I'd, I'd love to do a whole podcast with Anastasia <laughs> on the use of whole blood and, uh, oh, yeah, and trauma resuscitation. Excellent. Yeah. I'm up for it. Um, so I, I only just said that because um, it just came into my mind. So... Um, is there anything else to talk about the, the discussion about blood products? So I might just. So the only other thing I was thinking about is, um, I've is about what else do you do? What else could you use for hemostasis? And yep. I have had conversations with patients about absolutely not blood product derived, and that's Nova Seven, so bypassing yep. agents that directly activate the intrinsic, uh, sorry, the extrinsic clotting cascade, profoundly potent. Um, and actually gives you thrombin generation as a result because it is so yep. potent and so it's activated 7A. Um, and I have used that before and, and it was a cardiothoracic um, patient who yep. consented to it. So I guess that's the only other conversation. Yep. It's hard to use. It's associated with thrombosis, both arterial and venous. 
but if that's um, what they're comfortable to consent to, I think it is an appropriate time. Yes, it's off-label. Yes, the hospital has to pay for it, but most hospitals would be comfortable. If you had um, evidence, though, on that they were having trouble generating thrombin mm. because of their going off there, surely that make, it makes sort of pharmacological sense in yes, that situation. Yes, yes. Though, and I, yeah. I think it's really those women who, it, yeah. those patients who've had a two-litre <coughs> bleed and it is still bleeding and it is not stopping and yeah. you... You really do need that kind of ha- the concept of the hallelujah, but just remember it doesn't work in the absence of fibrinogen, calcium. Yeah, that's and what that's what I worry about. Is yeah. If you don't have all the other things there, yeah. um, they're sort of like white, um, yeah. doesn't really help. Um, okay, let me. And then some some will discuss um, prothrombinex in the same concept as uh, they would discuss fibrinogen conce- uh, concentrate. So yes. again, uh, because it's fractionated and it looks differently, sometimes they would talk about having prothrombinex replacement. Yep. What strategies, Nolan? What strategies should we use intraoperatively? You want the best possible surgeon doing yes. the surgery, and um, the best so possible anaesthetist. So, want as little bleeding as possible, basically, yeah. don't we? Yeah, um, yeah. and, and get it comes down to my said comes down to my point before about um, the best blood for the patient is their own blood, essentially, and so you want to respect every single drop of blood. Yep. And so, just a, a meticulous surgical technique, um, and that's I think one thing that we found here. Um, over our um, over our experience with our percretors and accreta population is just that uh, meticulous surgical technique essentially so putting half a day aside but mm. it might take us in some situations an hour to an hour and a half to get down to the mm. uterus to get down to the time we're going to deliver the yep. baby because of that meticulous surgical technique so I think <coughs> so in a, in a percent of percreta there's always a chance that suddenly you have this sort of very arterial sort of exsanguinating yeah. type blood bleeding yeah. situation can suddenly occur. So you need to have a plan to halt that. Now that might be um, a, a vascular surgeon clamping the aorta. It might be um, a member of the surgical team pressing on the aorta with, it, with a, um, a hand or a fist or a um, radiologist or a vascular surgeon mm-hmm. inflating a rebar in the aorta. There's some way of like, stopping that sort of Exsanguination. Because, because I guess, like, you know, we've had um, women who, who don't um, object to blood transfusions and then we've, you know, had to really chase really hard with, um, you know, level one infusers or the, um, or the yeah. Belmont infuser and we, we pump in all this blood from downstairs in the blood bank. But this is a situation where there's literally, that's not an option. So that there has to be, we have to sort of have some technique where we can just stop yeah. it. Yeah, and I mean, uh, yeah. I mean that's, that's we what can I talk about say. the interventional radiology yeah. approach with bilateral yeah. and general iliac balloons and things which can be inflated if we do get major hemorrhage but yep. um, it's, it's debatable the potential benefit of that um, yeah. we really don't have a lot of experience with that over here in Western Australia but there's certainly other centres in the world that will yep. will do that routinely in this type of surgery um, but it's also an intervention which has significant complication rate um, yep. and that's why for us it's really a rescue intervention um, yeah, so we have um, a vascular surgeon who's a member of our um, mm. percent of team, and I, I imagine in this sort of case, like you would want him um, to have scrubbed him from the start mm-hmm. and, and possibly sort of dissected out where, where the clamp was going to go and have it ready to go um, before all the action starts. Um, that's my personal thoughts. Yeah. What I do think you? having an exit strategy is a very good idea. Yeah. Yep. You um, need a good, a good entry strategy and an excellent ex- exit strategy. Mm. Look, I think there's important things that we do from the anaesthetic side of things in mm. terms of appropriate blood pressure control yep. and not not using any agents that might uh, contribute to a coagulopathy. Um, yep. And so, 
you know, simple things such as um, anti-inflammatory medication and mm. that as part of the yeah and colloids. as part of things. But then not yeah, using colloids going to raise that issue in relation to the synthetic colloids and, yep. and the, their effects on coagulation. So you want to not want to really be doing anything which is going to contribute to a coagulopathy. Yeah. So um, we used to use starches, but we got rid mm. of them pretty quick. Mm. Um, but even like the, the ones that are still around, the gelatin-based ones, they can cause a coagulopathy if you give um, if you give enough yeah. of those. Yeah, so and so avoid that. we don't use those yeah, at, all, for, at for all. The, for the listeners out there in the hospital, we Gelofusion. essentially our colloid source here is our 4%, soon to be 5% albumin. Um, We got rid of all our synthetic colloids essentially, I think, or we might keep two bags in the resuscitation trolley in the emergency centre. Oh right, okay. We should probably get rid of it. um, But (laughs) that was, yeah, that was essentially um, we got rid of it all and uh, and switched to just 4% albumin essentially. I do consent my woman to albumin as well though. Do you yes, know? Uh, we do as that's well. That's true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that's we do true. as well because yeah, yeah. it's a blood product. That's so true. Uh, uh, I would say yeah. most people wouldn't, in, in outside um, I, outside where we're working at the moment, if I was auditing consent to blood and blood products, I'd say about 20% of people would consent to albumin if they were for, like, they don't, I think what I'm trying to highlight is people forget albumin's a blood product. Yes. Yeah, and I think... No, so we do the reason, consent um, if we're going to use it. I just know from an accreditation perspective, it's mm. not... <laughs> actually, albumin hasn't been considered as a blood product from a consent from a blood product consent perspective in certain times, but certainly in this sort of setting, um, yeah. in terms of religious and personal beliefs, it's something that we get consent for. Yep. yep. All right. Um, so let's say that she has a pretty stormy course, but we do... a reasonable job and we managed she she does agree to um, have um, all the interventions we've talked about and we and we managed to get to the end of her surgery after quite a lot of blood loss but we've given some of the red cells back um, and she is I'm going to just make up a number she's profoundly anemic so hemoglobin is 21 oh. but she, but she's had um, two adult doses of cryoprecipitate and some um uh, I don't know, prothrombin X or something like that, and she and, and she looks like she's not coagulopathic now, and she's no, no longer bleeding. The uterus is out. What strategies do we have to manage this? What are the so principles I'll of managing someone so who's profoundly anemic? I'll, 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 I'll say twenty-one, and then I'll go to ten. We'll see what we can do there. But we'll start with twenty-one. Oh, <laughs> you're in trouble. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll I'll say a couple of things, and then I'll hand over to Anastasia. But essentially, you want to decrease this lady's oxygen consumption mm-hmm. um, and so at that sort of hemoglobin level we would be wanting to keep her asleep essentially yep. and, yep. and yep. transfer to an intensive care yep. unit um, and then that's where Anastasia's expertise will come in in terms of what we can do to stimulate red cell production um, in the setting with yeah is, uh, there any, is there an accelerated like how do we like it have the maximum out of her bone marrow so her bone marrow will be desperate to work so it's going to do. It, it, you can create a million red cells a second. Yep. Really? So yes, a million red a cells million a second. Re- do you know why? That's why we're so tired. But she, honestly, she will create a million. She'll have the building blocks to make a million red blood cells a second. So um, she's going to have extraordinarily high EPO levels anyway. We just want to make sure she's got enough iron to do it. So really, you are going to do um, basic life support to keep her, like I said, to, to minimise the amount of oxygen requirement she needs. I know where you're heading, but make sure she's got enough, uh, enough iron. I would give her another dose of IV iron at the okay. time. Would you give her some erythropoietin? I, I guess yeah. I'm getting to that. Yeah. So, um, yes, because we are nervous. Is yeah. it evidence-based? No. no. Will it add to her androgynous EPO? No. Um, will it cause harm? We haven't seen it happen. 
Um, but I would absolutely give her a dose of EPO because I need to do something. But yeah. she's going to have super I high levels. This of is EPO. like, on a, I'm obviously mm. have no idea. But what happens in critical illness, like when you're really unwell? Does your endogenous EPO so secretion not usually the change problem? Or no. no. So um, EPO is never really the issue. It's the disconnect between the um, the availability of the iron in the marrow. Yeah. So if you've got anemia of chronic disease or post inflammation for surgery, you will have a decrease availability of oral of iron in the marrow so that's why people say giving IV iron and EPO um, to these sort of patients is an appropriate strategy so it's available like literally at the top of the hat I've seen different uh, or read of I haven't seen uh, yeah. different approaches where sometimes they like infuse the iron slowly or give little small doses over d- uh, each day or, do, or should we just I be giving them a big dose I think up you front should, I, I, in these likely. situations I think you should follow hospital policies because if something goes bad I think you should be able so to just, say so just give them as usual. just give them another um, yeah another gram, gram. Okay. yeah yep. so I think that's where I'd be starting and uh, yep. I would probably so you do a weight based dose of EPO and I think in this case I would give a bolus dose um, there's some discussion about do you go um, multiple doses in a week or a high bolus in this situation I'd give a bolus if we're talking about you know some of GI bleeding and the haemoglobin is 50 and you have a different situation you can do intermittent dosing we do know there's a signal of harm with high doses of EPO so it can affect um, angiogenesis so you can have um, eye problems you can have heart attacks you can have strokes and things like that so we're not going to do so it can um, cause thrombosis. It can, can yeah. yeah. And so I think just keeping within <coughs> the guidelines that we'd use um, for weight-based dosing, um, it's usually around 20,000 international units of EPOA. I'd use EPOA because it's um, faster metabolised than the pegylated forms. Um, and um, I'm not going to want to do blood tests for yep. the best of my ability. Uh, yep. And I'd probably wait, if I possibly could, for mm. 24... I would definitely not do testing more than... 24 hours but I think I want to know what I'm dealing with at my baseline and I want a reticulocyte count at baseline yep. and I probably want a reticulocyte count when I do another blood test in a couple of days. So just to hammer that point home so most ICU patients will have an art line and usually they get lying and standing in serum rhubarbs and I blood know. gases every five minutes. No. Yeah. But so you have to you almost have to like have a sticker over it or even um, yep. you're probably not going to get away with not having an art line but you've got to say that they, this patient must not have any blood tests whatsoever and if they do PDG you can do like a neonatal PDG tubes. tubes. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Anastasia, can you put that EPO dosing into context? Because mm. I guess even amongst the medical profession, mm-hmm. the use of EPO is you know, yep. sort of not something that we're familiar with. Yep. And probably where most of us are familiar with is an endurance athletes mm-hmm. and Lance Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Sort of what sort of doses of EPO would they have been using in that sort of era versus what you're talking about in terms of a high dose? So I think in this woman's situation, I mean, they had sustained high doses um, relative to what we use for, like our only real reference ranges are patients with who are EPO deficient, so those patients with chronic renal failure. Yep. Um, and so that's kind of what we have to extrapolate the evidence from. Um, we would do weight-based dosing between 20 and 40,000 um, units per kilo, but 20 to 40 um, time, uh, base, yeah, 20 and 40 international units per kilo. Um, and that's why we kind of sit around that 20,000 for an average 70, 80 kilo woman. That's also conveniently one of the vial sizes or the dose sizes that you can give someone. So um, if is she was smaller, if she was smaller, if she was like 50 kilos, you could probably go 10,000. And is it expensive? It's about, I did used to know this, a couple of thousand. Okay. And is there a reason that we don't use it more commonly preoperatively in some of our women who Such might be... Question. 
might be anemic preoperatively and we don't have necessarily That's time to a good to question. So for those people who are really active in the patient blood management space, um, there's been randomised control trials that actually shows there's actually not difference in patient outcomes. There can be, and that's with IVI, and what is really interesting, there's a meta-analysis that said the patients actually got the highest haemoglobin increase preoperatively, and we're talking polycythemic sort of levels, yep. um, with sh- multiple short-acting EPO and oral iron, which was really surprising. Mm. Um, less effect with um, uh, EPO and IV iron, can't explain why, but it was definitely what came out in the meta-analysis. Um, and all of the dosing and the timing of the uh, EPO was such a mess. There was such profound heterogeneity between the studies. You really couldn't make an assessment of where you're going to go. So I think, unfortunately, it is one of these times where you would want somebody who has looked after a patient like this before to make a recommendation. Yep. Um, yep. And it would be a multidisciplinary decision about what to do. Um, but at the moment, there is uh, we've known in the preoperative setting that uh, IV iron prior to surgery doesn't necessarily change the outcomes. Yes, it will increase their haemoglobin if they're iron deficient and possibly decrease um, postoperative readmissions to hospital. But we haven't got that magic bullet to optimise haemoglobin. And it's probably based around hepcidin and inflammatory that what happens with inflammation at the time of surgery. Okay. So? So um, I because we have to do something. I think if you looked at her physiologically, her body is going to do the right thing, but I think we're impatient and we want yep. to expedite that. What I, The reason I'm keen to get a reticular site count um, is you'll see your tick start to go up about three days prior to your haemoglobin and then it will skyrocket. Okay. So you just want to double check yep. that the EPO has worked yep. and, and the lines worked. And as yep. soon as you get your reticular sites increasing, then you'll know 48 hours later you'll have an increase in the haemoglobin. Yep. Um, and when you see your reticks at like 200, uh, then I'd be backing. If you're giving multiple short-acting doses of EPO, I'd stop your EPO because you're going yep. to, it could potentially rebound. There was old-fashioned vogue to potentially get these patients into hyperbaric chambers to increase to yep, drive the oxygen drive. Oh, sorry, I'll leave you. Go for it. So for some reason, her hemoglobin drops to 10 mm. and um, her noradrenaline dose triples. Mm. It's getting close to maximum. Drop her QRS, Your QRS uh, complexes on her ECG have broadened. She's not making any urine. Mm. What are you going to do, Nolan? <laughs> You've already stolen my punchline. So... <laughs> Well, um, so we're, that we're in ICU. I'd have a chat to those very intelligent yeah. doctors about what we're going to do. Um, yeah, so there, there, are, there are some other therapies that have been used in these really extreme situations. You can sort of find them on, online and in case, re- case reports and case series. Yeah, and look, to be honest, I, I don't know too much about the hyperbaric oxygen and, and yep. this sort of setting because it's, it's, I'm not sure how commonly it's, it's done for these particular indications as opposed to other. Very rarely, but it has been indications. done. And, mm. and some centres, um, some hyperbaric centres have published case series on, mm. on doing this. Um, and uh, I remember sort of you know, reading a few of them when I was giving, get, you know, doing the talk on this a few years ago. Mm. And some, some, of them, some of the women, have, or yeah, most of them were women, have had very profound responses to it. So I think it does buy your time, and that's definitely like a, something worth, you know, Considering if someone's sort of on the edge of, you know, and look, I, I actually, I just want to want to bring this back because one of the key recommendations around appropriate care of these women is making sure that they are delivered in a centre with mm-hmm. access to high level services. Yeah, and so you don't want to do this patient at a in a rural remote community sort of hospital essentially, even if she's relatively low risk. Um, the fact a patient refusing blood and blood products puts them at high risk of of having issues and so you want these women to be delivering in a, in a high level tertiary facility with 
access to all those other potential interventions if required. Yep. So my, my for the case report that I read, I'll just show, share it with you. It was in um, the south of England, I think, and um, or it might have been San Diego, which I can't remember which one, but um, they both published cases on it, and uh, they just they had exactly what I described. This um, patient's hemoglobin was in the low teens, I think, and they were that they basically tried everything else, and they took her into the hyperbaric chamber three times a day for about four or five days, which must have been an absolute nightmare for the um, hyperbaric team. So taking a ventilated patient into a hyperbaric chamber is a real nightmare. Mm. Um, but apparently, um, you know, as soon as they turned on the hyperbaric oxygen, the vasopressors came down, the urine started flowing, the ECG normalised, and it would actually that actually lasted for four to six hours post-treatment. So it sort of just, like, I think it just saturated her tissue with oxygen. But then it was sort of decay, you know, started to, she'd start to deteriorate again and they'd take it back in. So and I, I guess they were waiting for the EPO and all yeah, the fancy it's, stuff it's to just work. Waiting. It's a bridging, it's a bridging bridge. therapy. Yeah. I did look into this for a patient I had uh, when I was working yeah. in another institution uh, in Perth, and there was no way the hyperbaric tremor yeah. team so were going to take the nurses no in. There's no way. And I have no idea what the hyperbaric um, yeah. yep. crew in, uh, in WA would say if we so approached them with that. Um, and it was really about uh, the care of the patient in there because they just said, I, we don't have the insurance if they arrest. Yep. So I do. I do have one of my colleagues who's um, and a, they a good friend. With. He was a hyperbaric, the head of hyperbaric therapy in um, Christchurch, mm-hmm. and uh, so he, he, they do. You did used to take uh, ICU, mm-hmm. you know, ventilated patients, and so some pla- some centres will. Mm-hmm. Take but it's them. also the transport as well, which is yep. terrifying. Yeah, um, yep. yep. very. Um, so uh, yeah. what about? Could I go sorry. one last hallelujah about yep. artificial blood? Yeah, I was going to ask about. So we had a registrar who worked with us yep. a few years ago who was involved in a case in Melbourne where they got some um, polymerized hemoglobin over from Massachusetts. Yep. So do you want to tell us about that? I think that it's surgery? just the same. And there was a um, Jehovah's Witness <coughs> patient here in Western Australia that was managed through an allograft with um, uh, with uh, artificial blood as well. Yeah. Uh, what would you like me to tell me? It's uh, not the same stuff. It doesn't carry oxygen very well at all. It carries about 20% of the oxygen as um, our allogeneic red cells. Yep. But it's something, um, and some patients will consent to it. It's uh, not TGA listed and approved, and you need to get a tissue and immigration permit uh, from the department. I think it's the Department of Agriculture and something, something, something else so from that have, perspective. So you have to sort of apply for a compassionate emergency use. Correct, and, and it still takes days and days and days. Yeah, and you've got to and get it from Massachusetts, I think, yep. or Boston or something. It's made. So it doesn't come, there's nowhere in Australia where it's available from. No, so it's not, it's not, um, it's not even, uh, what's the right word, entertained in Australia. I think the only place in the world, because I think it's only been licensed, or polymerized hemoglobin has only been licensed for use in South Africa, is the only country that has ever licensed it for use, and and it might not even be current, that might have only, they might have stopped using it, but... And I think that was partly because the risk of infectious disease transmission and... Yeah, I think they had such a shortage of blood, in the blood supply uh, Mm. in South Africa that they approved it. So talking to um, David Bagley, who's, uh, I think he's an intensivist down in Bunbury now, but he... He was involved in a woman who um, had some sort of trauma-related bleeding from, I think it was a horsing, horse riding accident, Goodness. and she ended up with a profound anemia, and they did you know, get some over, and they infused it. And the main problem with them is that they, because they're not inside a cell membrane, they they bind up, or they bind up nitric oxide, so they cause vasoconstriction. So they cause profound vasoconstrictive problems, including you know um, hypertension and um, 
coronary coronary and so pulmonary kidneys or hearts. Yeah, and so the he I'm trying to remember that he said they had to infuse it really slowly, mm. and they were running um, sodium nitroprusside or GTN or something to try and sort of keep the blood pressure down at the same time. But so they had to infuse it over a long period yeah. of time. But mm. but uh, it is a, a another sort of hallelujah. So it's mm. unlike like a tumor, sort of last ditch uh, sort uh, of thing. I and she she managed to make it. She made it through. I think the other thing, and this this is not the best way to end a case, but we had a patient who had leukaemia and she refused. Uh, she actually cho- she was young, um, didn't want to consent to blood products. Uh, we tried to give reduced dose chemotherapy, and she did she did succumb to the consequences of that. And her family weren't upset, so we felt like we'd failed. But the family were comfortable with her decisions and were really thankful that we respected those things. So I guess. I'm wrapping all this up because it sounds like there's not always options, but respecting the patient's choices is actually yep. what we're supposed to do. And so sometimes these, and it's not an okay thing to think about a young woman who will lose their life, but if if the family has been part of the journey and agrees, that's um, we are yeah, respecting their that, choices. And if that is the, the woman's pers- strong personal beliefs as well, mm-hmm. then we should respect them. Yep, I agree. Thanks. Sorry, and um, I know. No, no, and no, I'm no. just <laughs> trying to say sometimes you do the very best you can. Yeah, and I think that's right. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, I just like to thank both you, Anastasia, for coming back and um, letting us pick your brains because I've, I've learned a lot from these three sort of mini cases we've discussed. And Nolan, also, thanks. For, I've learned quite nice a bit for you. And it's fantastic. Some really useful um, ways to approach things. So thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time. I'd like to acknowledge the Wajak people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. Pay our respects to elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.